It's been my joy for the last few weeks to be reading and preaching through John. Uh, not, not the whole book, but beginning with John 17 and then chapter 18. And today we're going to look at chapter 19, half of it, because we've looked at Jesus in the garden, Jesus praying, Jesus being arrested, going before the high priest, Annas and Caiaphas, going before Pontius Pilate and being on trial and today being taken to the cross. It does talk about our worship and about who we are and about how we live. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. Now I want to pause because there's a period there and we don't need to run across that. Because the flogging, the scourging, was about as horrible as anything could happen to a human being. And that's what they did to Jesus. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They, they clothed him with a purple robe and went up to him again and again, saying, mocking him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and slapping him. In the face. Once more, Pilate came out and said to the Jews gathered there, Look, I'm bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no basis for a charge against him. When Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said, Here is the man. See what I've done to him, see how I've beaten him. As soon as the chief priest and their officials saw him, they shouted, crucify, crucify. But Pilate answered, you take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. The Jewish leaders insisted, we have a law. And according to that law, he must die because he claimed to be the Son of God. When Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid. And he went back inside the palace. Where do you come from? He asked Jesus. But Jesus gave him no answer. Do you refuse to speak to me, Pilate said? Don't you realize I have power either to free you or to crucify you? Jesus answered, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. I assume he meant Caiaphas, the high priest. From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free. But the Jewish leaders kept shouting, If you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. When Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judge's seat at a place known as the Stone Pavement, apparently outside made up of stone, steps leading up, Pilate sitting like a judge above everybody else around him, with Jesus down below, standing in judgment before him. 
in Aramaic, which was the common dialect of the Jews of that day, spoken by almost everyone, the place was known as Gabbatha. It was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was the sixth hour. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews. But they shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king, Pilate asked. We have no king but Caesar, the chief priest answered. Can you imagine that? Think about that. Here are the chief priests of the Jews. Here are the religious leaders of Judaism. And of all things, they say we have no king but Caesar. And they accused Jesus of blasphemy by saying that he was the son of God. Finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus. Carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull, which in the Aramaic dialect is called Golgotha. There they crucified him and went with him two others, one on each side and Jesus in the middle. Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And the sign was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. The chief priest of the Jews protested to Pilate, don't write he was the king of Jews, write he claimed to be the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I've written, I've written. When the soldiers crucified Jesus... And by the way, in all of the Gospels, that's all it says. When they crucified him, they knew that it involved nails. They knew that it involved terrible things that would happen to the man from one to six or seven days being crucified. They knew about the thirst. They knew about the blood loss. They knew about that he was totally helpless to do anything. They knew about all of that beating. So when the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, dividing them into four shares, one for each of them, with the undergarment remaining. This garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who shall get it. This happened that the scripture might be fulfilled that said, they divided my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. So this is what the soldiers did. I want to ask you today a question about worship. 
Because as I said, I do think about this all the time. Why, why do we have a sermon? And why do we read scripture? And why do we sing praises? And why do we give an offering? And why do we do all of these things? I, I think those are questions that ought to be asked. And I think those are questions that you ought to, that you ought to look at and I ought to look at. But one question I want to ask is, why do we worship? And I want to put it in three parts. The first, the first question is this. Who do you worship? Or let's put it in personal terms. Who do I worship? And I say it that way because I, I read a quote by Greg Laurie this week. Greg Laurie, if you haven't seen the Jewish rep, uh, the Jesus Revolution, I would in really encourage you to see it. It is well done. It is kind of a thrilling thing, but it is a very realistic look at at religious life and Christians and and a lot of the things that are about us. But the whole point was in the early 1970s, started in California, there was the Jesus Revolution, and, and it kind of swept the country. I have two really good friends, one deceased, one still living, who were saved out of that movement and have served God in ministry all of the years until then. My, my other friend until about two years ago when he died. And so I've always been amazed and impressed by that. Well, Greg Laurie was saved in it and called to minister in it and started a church from it that goes on now. And Greg Laurie is one of the best known evangelists in America, still serving God after all of these years, faithful in service to God. Here's what Greg Laurie said about worship. He said, everybody worships someone or something. It may be a sports figure or an entertainer or someone else. It may be a possession or it may be all of their possessions. But everyone bows at some kind of altar. And the next paragraph we put on your sermon sheet. Atheist worship. Skeptics worship. Republicans and Democrats worship. Independents worship. Everyone, everywhere worships. It's the fundamental drive of life and one of the unique distinctions of humanity. It's like Ecclesiastes 3.11. God has placed eternity in the heart of human beings. What does that mean? It means that he's placed a longing for him it means that he's placed a desire for us to know him. That's why I say that children are all worshipers of God. Now, I know they aren't all, but there is something within the heart of a child that wants to know about God. 
And unless that child has been, his view has been twisted and warped, that child wants to know about God, wants to know about Jesus, wants to know about heaven and hell, wants to know about the the cross, wants to know about eternity, wants to know about who is God. God has placed within us a desire, a longing for eternity, a longing for Him. So those three questions I want to ask. One real question, why do we worship? But within it, three, and here's the part. The first one is very personal. And I want this time to be a very personal time. And I I want it to be different than everything else you do in the week. Because when we have a time of worship and singing praises to God and giving and praying and the reading of Scripture and preaching and a call for us to look at our lives, there is one hour in the week that you do that. Now, I'm going to say I'm 99% right. I don't know who the other one of you is. But all the rest of us, we do this one time a week. When we think about eternity, when we think about heaven and hell, when we think about the God of the universe, when we ask ourselves the question, am I living a life that is pleasing to God? Am I becoming more like Jesus every day? All of us need an hour like this every week in which we look at our lives. And I want you to look at your life and ask yourself the question, who do I worship? Which altar do I bow before? And then I want you to ask, so why do we worship? And why is this building filled with the hope of the Lord Jesus Christ? So let's look at John chapter 19, and ask ourselves those questions. And and I'm going to give you five reasons of why we worship. Most of them are found in this passage of Scripture, but all of them are found throughout Scripture. Why do we worship God? Why have we come together today to honor Him, to lift Him up, to exalt Him? Why do we meet for Bible study? Why do we pray together? Why do we do these things? Well, let me give you those five reasons. The first one is because God sent his son. Because he came for a purpose. Simon Peter said it this way, that God determined before the foundation of the world that he would give his son to die upon the cross for our sins, that we might belong to God, that we might be righteous and to be able to stand before God. God sent his son, and at just the right time in history, Paul said, in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son. And you could talk about all kinds of reasons why it was the perfect time in history, but the main reason is it's because God determined the time. And God sent his son at just that 
perfect time so that all men could know of him and all men could hear of him all over the world. And by the way, that is being fulfilled every day. The gospel, part of scripture, has gone out to almost every language in the world. The only ones that don't have something like the gospel of John or, or the story of the crucifixion and the resurrection or something like that, they're only, the only languages that don't have that are those dialects that are made up of about a hundred people who speak them. Jesus said the day is coming when the gospel will go out to every language, and that is so close. And you and I ought to be praying for that to happen because everybody on earth deserves to know that God sent forth his son. Everybody on earth deserves to know that there is a hope that comes in the God of the universe who gave his son, that God sent forth his son. And everybody needs to know that he died on the cross for our sins and that he was raised from the dead. And that this is God at work in our lives. Now, I know I, I have good friends who say, I, I just can't believe. And you know what I think about at that point? I think about... Caiaphas, the high priest, and Annas, the father-in-law of the high priest, who had been the high priest. And I think of these chief priests, these members of the Sanhedrin, because they knew but wouldn't believe. So if you start putting groups of people, who saw the most about Jesus? Well, the twelve the women who followed along with him, other men who followed along with him, not all the time, but from time to plot time. Luke very prominently tells us that the women were at the background of his ministry, making sure that he was provided for, and they had food to eat, and they had the things that they needed to do that ministry. So they obviously, obviously knew the most, and the 12, they were there for the feeding of the 5,000 and the walking on the water and the raising of Lazarus from the dead. From the, the story of turning water into wine at Cana of Galilee and the lame walk in the blind sea and the deaf hear. So they knew. But I'm going to make a judgment. I'm going to say the second group who maybe didn't know that much but knew more than most of the common people did were the chief priests and the members of the Sanhedrin because they held on to power. People who love to have power know what's going on in the world. People who love to be authoritarians, despots, ruling over the world, they love to know what's going on. My guess is that Caiaphas knew Lazarus. Remember what, what Luke said, what John said? They had a plot. They were trying to find a way to kill Lazarus because they couldn't deny. There were all kind of people who had been there. He had been in the grave four days. 
and Lazarus walking around meant they couldn't deny it. And here's my point. They believed, but they didn't have faith. Jesus always talked about faith. He didn't talk about this kind of belief. He talked about faith. He talked about trusting God, about putting your life in his hands. Anytime somebody came and, and asked him to do something, he talked about faith. It's not that Caiaphas and the others couldn't or wouldn't, couldn't believe. It's that they wouldn't believe. And faith in God is not so much what you can't do, but what you won't do. And I say that, I hope, kindly and gently because I want you to believe and I want you to trust. I want you to put your faith in God and know Him. We worship because God sent His Son. We worship because Christ suffered for us. John 19 verses 1 through 6 describe that suffering. They, they scourged him. Scourging, remember, for the Romans, the Romans would not scourge their own citizens. Do you know that? They wouldn't crucify their own citizens. But they would scourge other people. They would take what they called a cat of nine tails, a whip, and out of the end of the whip coming nine pieces of leather. And at the end of each piece of leather there would be a sharp piece of bone or a sharp rock or a piece of brass that they would then put the person to be scourged over a table or a stone with his back bowed, and for the most part, they would beat him on his back again and again and again. The Jews had a law, 40 stripes and no more. And the Jews would always end at number 39 just to make sure they didn't miss a number. The Romans didn't have that law. They could beat a man to death and often did. Often a person would bleed out from the, from the beating because the, one of the arteries, a main artery, would be suffered. Even internal organs exposed. So it's no wonder that when they gave the cross to Jesus for him to carry it, he, he was not able to do it. He'd been up all night long. This occurred in the middle of the night, early in the morning, 6 o'clock in the morning thereabouts. It occurred early on. And many men died from the beating. We worship him because he suffered for us. Not just the physical thing, but the the spiritual thing of taking our sin upon himself and the, the psychological part of being, of being mocked. Hail, king of the Jews, the crown of thorns on his head that created more blood flow. The, the purple robe, probably a soldier's red robe that had faded and had been discarded and they put it on him because it made him look like a king. And then they mocked him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and hitting him in the face. We worship because that's exactly what he did for us. 
passage of scripture I would encourage you to read is Isaiah 53. It's literally Isaiah 52, 13 through 53, 12. It's the suffering servant passage. Remember when Paul and Peter went to other places preaching the gospel, they would tell the Jews that the Messiah has come. His name is Jesus. He came from God. He is God's son that all of this was foretold in Scripture. And using and opening the Scriptures, they preached unto them Jesus. So a good question to ask is, what Scripture? Well, Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But Isaiah 53, listen to verses 4 and 5. Surely he took up our pain. Christ suffered for us. He took up our pain, bore our suffering. Yet we misunderstood what was happening. We considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But it wasn't by God. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace This is hundreds of years before Jesus came. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. Why do we worship? We worship because Jesus chose us over himself. Pilate asked him, where do you come from? And Jesus didn't answer Pilate got angry and said, don't you understand the power that I have? If I want to, I can set you free, or if I want to, I can have you crucified. What would you have done? Well, we pretty well know human nature. My guess is we would be begging for life. But Jesus chose us over himself. Look again at Isaiah 53, verse 7. He was oppressed and afflicted hundreds of years before the time of Jesus, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open His mouth. He chose you over himself. That's why we worship. You just don't forget somebody who makes you the focus, who does for you what you can't do for yourself. He chose us over Himself, But there's a fourth thing he did and a fourth reason why we worship him and why we're here today and why Easter is such a a wonderful time of the year and the highlight of all that we say and do. It's because he died for us and he was the righteous one dying for the unrighteous. He suffered and died for us. He who knew no sin, Paul said, became sin for us. He took 
my sin and your sin on himself. He took the punishment for sin. We could not go before God. We are unrighteous. We do not have any right to stand in the presence of God. That, of course, tells us why there can never be a time that we can be good enough to go to heaven because all of our righteousness is as filthy rags. We are a sinful people. We've been raised by sinful people. All of our ancestors, all the way to Adam and Eve, have been sinful people. We have no standing before God except that God sent his son, died on the cross for our sins. The righteous one who had no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. Listen to Isaiah 53, verse 6. I love this verse because in Hebrew, it's so interesting. The first word in Hebrew and the last word in Hebrew are exactly the same word. That means something like all of us. So listen to this. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Are there any more true words in any language than these words? Each one of us has turned to our own way. That's the definition of sin. We've turned to our own way. We've done our own thing. We've done what we want to do. We, we've made our own choices. It's all about me. All of us, like sheep, have turned away. All of us have turned to our own way. And here's the story of the gospel. And it's in Isaiah. And the Lord has laid on him, the iniquity of us all. He died for us, the righteous for the unrighteous. And for that reason, we worship. But there's a fifth reason why we worship, and it's because he is our eternal king. If you get to the end of Isaiah 53, do you know what it talks about? It talks about the servant, because this is a suffering servant passage uh, designated that way by biblical scholars for hundreds of years, and the Jews always looking at those servant poems in the book of Isaiah. And, and the end of that passage, do you know what it talks about? It talks about the servant Dying, like verse 6, laid on him the iniquity of us all, he, he dies. But then the passage says, but he shall see his offspring. Now I would suggest to you that among other reasons why we don't want to die is because we would like to see our children, like to walk them down the aisle, like to see our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren. So the end of Isaiah says, talks about the servant dies, but he shall see his offspring. He shall see 
the fruit of his labor. That's what it says. He'll see, you know what, what he sees? He sees what's happened to you and me. He calls us by name and knows us by name. He knows the way we used to be. He knows the, the, the sinful nature that we have. And he sees that we're new people and that we desire to be like Jesus and that our lives, that he want, that we want to live differently than we've lived and that, that we're convicted of our sin and open our hearts and our lives to God. He is the eternal king. So we, we kind of get the idea. Here we come up to Easter. Well, Jesus lived. God sent his son. He lived. He performed miracles. He died on the cross for our sins. He was raised from the dead. He ascended in heaven, into heaven, into the story, right? That's all there is. We're looking back at history. But it's not the end of the story. And yes, we're looking back to the past, but we're also looking to the future. Because this eternal king, this king is the eternal king. This is the king of all kings. This is the Lord of all lords. And so there's an event that is happening. We all live in the latter days. From the time of the ascension until now have been the latter days. And we've all lived then. And we've all been looking for something that's going to happen. And we've looked for being in the presence of God and knowing God. And that day is coming. For all who believe, for all who put their faith in God, either we're going to see Jesus face to face the moment after death. I have a friend who says the worst day of your life, the worst moment of your life, talks about your death. Not sure that's the worst moment, but that's what he says. The worst moment of your life is going to be immediately followed by the best moment of your life because you're going to see Jesus. I often quote these two quotes in a funeral sermon. The first one says, somewhere, some when, a theologian, somewhere, some when, somehow, we who are worshiping God here, that's you and me right now, we're worshiping God here, will wake up to him as he is, face to face. That's what's coming. And another theologian said it this way, Jesus Christ is coming back to earth through a real sky. Book of Revelation says he's coming on the clouds. Jesus Christ is coming back to earth through a real sky on a real day to take real people to a real paradise. I love the question he asked. He said, wouldn't you like to be a part of that? And then he says, just as surely as you believe he lay in a manger... The largest day of worship we have is Easter. Second largest day is Christmas Eve. And on Christmas Eve, there are no skeptics and there are no deniers and there are no unbelievers. 
Because on Christmas Eve, they believe that Jesus lay in a manger. And it feels good. This theologian said, just as surely as you believe that he lay in a manger, so he is coming back to take his people for himself. And it demands faith. Something that Caiaphas and Annas and the Sanhedrin didn't have. A humble submission before God. A recognition that we are sinners and that we need someone to take the place of us. And so God sent His Son. And we offer ourselves to Him and trust Him as our Lord and Savior. That's the next big event, the return of Christ. So I give you a gentle, I hope kind, meaningful invitation. I invite you to walk to the front, talk with a pastor here. You don't have to know anything or do anything other than I want to know God. I want my life to be in His hands. I want to be forgiven of our sins. We'll take over at that point and help you with that. But for those of you who are believers, a different kind of invitation. Would you say to God, God, I want to be more like Jesus. I want my life to count for Him. I want to live in a way that pleases Him. I want to live in holiness before God. Would you come and talk with the pastor, pray with the pastor, pray here at the front, and worship God with your life. Let's stand together. And I'm going to pray, and as immediately after my prayer, it'll be time for you to walk to the front. And I ask you to do so. Let's pray. God, thank you for giving us your Son, the Lord Jesus. We worship Him because you are God, because you loved us so much that you gave your one and only Son, that whoever puts faith in Him might not perish but have eternal life. Life, God, draw these people to yourself and draw us to you to come in repentance and, and desiring to be like you. I pray, God, your blessings on us during this time. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.